Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. Every one of us tries to make sense of our current world by telling versions of history that seem to put the puzzle pieces together or offer the most validation. Our own lies agreed upon. In this first season of our podcast, we've explored the many ways that 9-11 influenced writers, directors, and producers, and how they used history to discuss and process that day and its legacy. Last week, we discussed films about the day itself. In this episode, we ask how Hollywood reckoned with both its causes and its effects. United 93 and World Trade Center portrayed our lack of preparedness for a disaster the size and scope of 9-11. But why did it happen in the first place? How could we miss it when we have the largest and richest military and intelligence agencies in the world? And what were we justified in doing to bring a reckoning down on the heads of our enemies? Moments after the planes hit, Dozens of CIA and FBI officials had their worst fears confirmed. They each knew separate pieces of the story, but enduring and vicious turf wars over counterterrorism prevented any meaningful cooperation. Aside from the incredibly detailed 9-11 Commission final report released in 2004, excellent journalists told this part of the story. Lawrence writes The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, came out in 2006 and it won the Pulitzer Prize. And yet, no film studio or TV network wanted to take up this story. It took 17 years and a relative upstart streaming service, Hulu, to finally adapt The Looming Tower for a miniseries. This is our first topic. Part two of The Reckoning confronts the choices we made in a cloud of fear and shame after 9-11. Dick Cheney casually let it be known that there would be no tying the hands of our intelligence community and famously urged the country to welcome a turn to the dark side in an unprecedented war on terror. Within months of 9-11, while the CIA was winning praise for dismantling al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, the agency pursued a course of action that would lead to one of its greatest moral and ethical failures, the detention and interrogation program. More specifically, the CIA embraced so-called enhanced interrogation techniques that not only violated our own laws and professed values, but simply did not work. We discussed two films with decidedly different takes on the CIA after 9-11, Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty, which came out in 2012, and Scott Burns' 2019 The Report. Bigelow's exciting depiction of the decade-long hunt for Osama bin Laden valorizes individual CIA officers while perhaps unintentionally, leaving the audience with the impression that torture provided critical information leading to the 2011 raid on bin Laden. The report is a methodical reconstruction of the investigation into the CIA's detention and interrogation program depicted in Zero Dark Thirty, culminating in the 2014 release of the Senate Intelligence Committee's unsparing report detailing a decade of CIA abuses. As you'll see, these films go together well. In fact, Zero Dark Thirty was so effective in implanting a false narrative in the minds of moviegoers that the Senate investigators of the report felt the need to challenge it directly and correct the record. So what are the lies agreed upon that we're going to be looking at today? Well, first, there was the lie that we were somehow surprised 
by the attacks, that it was an ambush, a knife in the back or whatever Toby Keith lyric you prefer. And the second lie seems to contradict this one, but these lies are along a continuum. For those who did pay attention to the 9-11 report, what was then required was a new lie that could erase that shame. So the new lie was that while our intelligence agencies had indeed been unprepared, bumbling, and more focused on their bureaucratic rivals than the threats in front of them, suddenly, after 9-11, they turned into a lean, hyper-disciplined force for justice and retribution. They brought the war to Al-Qaeda, and the CIA finished the job in 2011, bagging bin Laden in heroic fashion. Why does this myth persist? Both Hollywood and a very effective PR campaign composed of Bush and Obama veterans are the reasons why. And this lie is in turn connected to our final lie. That torture is effective and justified because it gets results. Thanks to the same combination of bipartisan government officials, CIA employees, and Hollywood, America kept trying to rewrite the historical narrative on torture even as it was still being used, just renamed as enhanced interrogation. And this goes on. It might be unseemly, and maybe not as effective as we were told, but ultimately torture can be a forgivable offense. As always, we begin with a recap of our movies, and in this case, TV show. And so for the first time today, we're going to be talking about a miniseries, the excellent 10-episode Hulu production. It was created by Dan Futterman, an actor and director, Alex Gibney, known for some edgy documentaries about Enron and Scientology, for example, and Lawrence Wright, a New Yorker staff writer who wrote the award-winning book, The Looming Tower. And it takes us inside the CIA and FBI and their fraught relationship between 1998 and September 11th, 2001. It stars Jeff Daniels, Tahar Rahim, Peter Sarsgaard, Ren Schmidt, Bill Camp, and many other fine actors you'll likely recognize on some of your favorite quality TV shows. Looming Tower is a docudrama, and so every notable character is based on or a composite of real people including the Al-Qaeda operatives who, refreshingly, are actually given backstories, motivation, and rich internal lives. Uh, But the heart of the story pits the FBI's counterterrorism office, led by John O'Neill, which is played by Jeff Daniels, and the CIA's Alex Station, the small analytical unit dedicated to Al-Qaeda. This was led by a controversial figure named Michael Scheuer, who currently posts QAnon nonsense on his blog. In the series, his name is changed to Martin Schmidt and played by Peter Sarsgaard. Schmidt's unit is comprised exclusively of young women analysts, one of whom, Diane Marsh, is his wife in real life. Marsh, by the way, is a model for Maya in Zero Dark Thirty, which we'll be discussing later. These offices despise each other, and it is deeply personal. O'Neill calls Alex Station the Manson family, and Schmidt and Marsh dismiss the two FBI agents embedded with them as the retarded twins. Both units are on Al-Qaeda's trail, but their real war is with each other. 
If you can identify protagonists in The Looming Tower, they are John O'Neill and his young Muslim protege, Ali Soufan, who was one of just eight Arab speakers in the FBI at the time. Soufan also plays a crucial role in The Report, which we'll be talking about a little later, as a fierce opponent of the CIA's torture program. Soufan and O'Neill approach al-Qaeda as criminals to be investigated, arrested, and tried in a U.S. court. Alex Station views them as terrorists to be neutralized, no matter the cost or collateral damage. Both perspectives have merit, but the point of the series is to dramatize how this personal and professional animus prevented crucial intelligence sharing that ultimately led to the hijackers slipping into the country unnoticed. We know this because the series also recreates the relevant testimony given before the 9-11 Commission from Soufan, Schmidt, or Scheuer, Richard Clark, who's played by Michael Stolibarg, and Condoleezza Rice, among others. Let's listen to a clip from early on in episode one, where Tahar Rahim, as Ali Soufan, testifies in front of the 9-11 Commission about the dysfunctional relationship between the FBI and the CIA and the ramifications of that relationship. Could you state your name and place of employment for the record? Special Agent Ali Soufan, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Date and place of birth? July 8th, 1971, Sidon, Lebanon. Agent Soufan, you testified in preliminary session that the CIA withheld intelligence from the FBI on multiple occasions. Intelligence that would have prevented the attacks of September 11th. Yes, sir, I did. What you're saying is contrary to CIA testimony. All right. So you're telling us they've lied to this commission? If members of the CIA testified that the agency properly shared information with the Bureau in the manner in which they are, by law, directed to, then you've been lied to. Looming Tower builds around crucial moments between 1998 and 2001. The August 1998 African embassy bombings, which was the declaration of war by al-Qaeda, the failed millennium plot in 2000, the attack on the USS Cole in August of 2000, and then 9-11. The closer we get to the flashing red light, the worse the national security bureaucracy performs. Lawrence Wright, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker, covers an even longer period of time in his book. But even though the miniseries starts later in the narrative, it's still striking how much goes on before 9-11. The meticulous gumshoe work reinforces that, at the end of the day, terrorists are indeed just another form of criminal to be wiretapped, followed, interrogated, and apprehended. Cheney and others tried to make them out as some modern-day boogeymen, warranting a new level of ruthless response. This fundamental difference in approach and philosophy is on display in this clip, where we will hear Michael Stolbarg as Richard Clark overseeing a meeting of the National Security Council, which includes Peter Sarsgaard as the head of Alex Station and Jeff Daniels as O'Neill. O'Neill has just found out that Alex Station is keeping intelligence from the FBI. Thank you for making yourselves available once again. Let's get status updates before moving ahead. Martin? Nothing new this week. You have nothing new? That's what I said, John. You think I'm a complete moron? You interested in an answer to that question? Can I remind you of Ennis Directive 30? 
signed by President Reagan, and PRD-44, signed by President Clinton. Thank you for the memories. It's not your choice whether you share intelligence. You're required to share it with the FBI and everybody else in this room. I have nothing new, Richard. What's going on in Albania, Marty? You got a hard drive from Ahmed Salama Mabruk that mentions Albania. Where's Mabruk? Why hasn't the FBI had a chance to question him? What's on his hard drive? If we were in possession of such a computer, and I'm not confirming that we are, it would be a foreign intelligence matter, not a law enforcement matter. So you do have the hard drive? I don't know how you reach that. How would you know if it was a law enforcement matter or a foreign intelligence matter if you haven't looked at the hard drive? If we did have any intelligence whatsoever, it would be for us to decide how best to use it before you do what you always do, go around the globe arresting people and putting them on trial, before you blow a possible gold mine of information and render it utterly useless. So no, I'm not prepared to say one how way or another. How about you take a deep fucking breath and get yourself okay, prepared to calm get down your ass? For a minute. I don't want to calm down. If one American gets killed because of information you kept secret, when I get my hands on that hard drive, and I will get my hands on it, I will shove that thing so far up your ass you'll be combing shit out of your pompous fucking beard. All right, all right, enough, John. The point of these meetings is to share what we've got from our teams and work together. We might need to watch list names. We might... You know what, gentlemen? Have a good meeting. I need to do some actual work. Over the years of investigation and multiple episodes of The Looming Tower... We get to know our characters in ways not possible in the feature-length Zero Dark Thirty and The Report. In particular, Jeff Daniels is great as the smart, resourceful, but deeply flawed FBI agent John O'Neill, who juggles multiple women, spends himself into incredible debt, and refuses to play nice with his increasingly annoyed superiors. Facing dismissal and clearly on the losing side of the war with Alex Station, O'Neill eventually takes a lucrative job as director for security at the World Trade Center just before the attack. This sad irony plays out in the final episode as we watch characters react in all the ways we come to expect from each of them because we've gotten to know them intimately. Regret, rage, shame self-preservation, and in the case of some, contrition. The most famous articulation of contrition, perhaps, came from National Security Advisor Richard Clark. Let's end with the actual testimony by Richard Clark, which is recreated to the Looming Tower. In fact, they are the series' closing words. I also welcome the hearings because it is finally a forum where I can apologize to the loved ones of the victims of 9-11. To them who are here in the room, to those who are watching on television, your government failed you. Those entrusted with protecting you failed you. And I failed you. We tried hard, but that doesn't matter because we failed. And for that failure, I would ask, Once all the facts are out, for your understanding and for your forgiveness. It can't be overstated how electrifying this testimony was at the time. The entire governmental response to 9-11 had been so mendacious up to this moment that when Clark testified, it was declared by many media critics as the most riveting day of television ever. So now let's flash forward to the action-packed and cathartic revenge tale that is Zero Dark Thirty. 
directed by Catherine Bigelow and written by Mark Boll, the same team that brought you the Academy Award winning The Hurt Locker in 2008, Zero Dark Thirty methodically reconstructs the hunt for bin Laden and the successful raid killing him inside his Pakistani compound in May of 2011. Originally titled Kill Bin Laden, the film was still in production when news broke about the raid, allowing Bigelow to change tack and recreate SEAL Team 6's mission. Zero Dark Thirty stars Jessica Chastain, Jason Clark, Kyle Chandler, Jennifer Ely, who also is in The Looming Tower, Chris Pratt, James Gandolfini in one of his last roles as CIA director Leon Panetta, and a number of other great character actors rounding out the cast. The film begins with the anguished recordings of 9-11 victims calling their families from the World Trade Center before abruptly shifting to a burly Jason Clark brutalizing an al-Qaeda detainee at a CIA black site. The association between 9-11 tragedy and the righteous anger responsible for enhanced interrogation could not be more clear. The marathon sessions with the detainee supposedly leads to a kernel of information that will prove vital to Maya's relentless hunt for bin Laden. Although it is revealed this information was in the CIA's possession all along, the report is more explicit about making this point. Let's play a clip of Jason Clark's character torturing a member of the Saudi group, a money man supposedly instrumental in the hunt. Maya is a bystander here, and it is a brutal clip. You and your uncle murdered 3,000 innocent people. I don't want to talk about 9-11 yet. What I want to focus on is the Saudi group. That there is Hazem al-Kashmiri. And I know this dude is up to some serious shit. What I want from you is his Saudi email. I told you before, I won't talk to you. Have it your way. Let's go. Come on. When you lie to me, I hurt you. Saudi group. Now, what's the target? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden? Where was the last time you saw Bin Laden, huh? We are meant to wince at this scene, but like Maya, who is visibly uncomfortable, we also want to hear his answers because the film has set us up to believe that they matter. And that's the thing. At the center of all of this is our guide through nearly a decade of counterterrorism strategy, Maya, a character with only one dimension to her, the single-minded determination to find and kill bin Laden. She has no life outside of this mission, no loved ones, no personal history, no rich interior life at all. Neither do any other characters exhibit complexity beyond the furtherance of the hunt. Consequently, there's no interrogating the question of why killing bin Laden matters. The film is thrilling, and we also reflexively root for Maya because she's the only woman in the room. Here she is in a room as her superiors, all men, hem and haw over whether to commit to raiding the compound in Abbottabad. 
Leon Panetta, played by Gandolfini, is sounding out opinions. I'm about to go look the president in the eye. Then what I'd like to know, no fucking bullshit. It's where everyone stands on this thing. Now, very simply, is he there or is he not fucking there? We don't deal in certainty. We deal in probability. And I'd say there's a 60% probability he's there. I concur. 60%. I'm at 80%. There are OPSEC as well convinces me. You guys ever agree on anything? Well, I agree with Mike. We're basing this mostly on DTE reporting, and I spent a bunch of time in those rooms. I'd say it's a soft 60, sir. I'm virtually certain there's some high-value target there. I'm just not sure it's been Laden. I'd like to know what Maya thinks. We're all incorporating her assessment DARS. 100% he's there. Okay, fine. 95% because I know certainty freaks you guys out, but it's 100. They're all cowed. What do you think of the girl? I think she's fucking smart. We're all smart, Jeremy. I love that line. We're all smart. The dramatic conclusion of Zero Dark Thirty is Bigelow at her best. We are embedded with SEAL Team 6 as they sneak into Pakistan, recover from one helicopter crash, shoot and kill guards and family members inside the compound, and ultimately return with the body of Number One himself. The film ends with a note of pathos and ambiguity, as Maya's final act is to identify the body, almost as if she's the nearest kin. When it's over, what is left for Maya? We don't know because we don't know her. Boarding an empty plane reserved just for Maya, the pilot asks her where she wants to go. All she can do is break down. Bigelow is asking all Americans in 2012, where do you want to go? What's next? The controversy surrounding Zero Dark Thirty, specifically the notion that torture led to the intelligence breakthrough responsible for the successful raid, was rolled into the Senate Intelligence Committee's ongoing investigation into the detainee program. Senators opposed to the program were appalled by the film and the perception it created in viewers. That investigation is, in turn, the subject of the 2019 film, The Report. Written and directed by Scott Burns, the report stars Adam Driver as lead investigator Daniel Jones and Annette Benning as Intelligence Committee leader Senator Dianne Feinstein. It also stars John Hamm, Maura Tierney, Michael C. Hall, Corey Stoll, Matthew Reese, and Ted Levine. The film begins in 2003 with the young and idealistic Jones applying for a job in Feinstein's office but he's encouraged to get national security experience first. In 2007, now working for FBI counterterrorism, Jones begins working for the Intelligence Committee and leads an investigation into the CIA's destruction of interrogation tapes in 2009. This snowballs into what will be a more expansive investigation into the entire history of the detention and interrogation program. The black sites, torture, at least one death, and failure to inform Congress over many years. Jones is the primary author of the 2013 final report on the CIA's detention and interrogation program, and the film is as much about how insanely difficult it was to to release the report as it is about its content. Jones is a lot like Maya, single-minded, inclined to clash with authority, and devoted to what he believes is right. They seem to face similar roadblocks when it comes to their respective missions, political equations, and aversion to risk. 
here's a clip of Jones briefing Feinstein about the death of detainee Gul Rahman after repeated waterboardings in 2002. Are you accusing the CIA of murder, Dan? Because that sounds like where this is going. We have proof the deputy director coached the officer in charge how to cover up what happened. Told him to be careful what he put in writing. So why would they need to cover it up if they were following standard operating procedure? Why didn't they tell the committee? Why didn't they tell you? I'm going to need to review all this personally. It's very disconcerting. Disconcerting? Very disconcerting. Dan, you need to be careful here. Fucking killed a guy and nobody was held accountable? We don't know he was a terrorist. We barely even know his name. I understand. And what you need to understand is that her name is going on this report, not yours. Senate staff doesn't have to run for your election, but she does. Their legal argument said EITs wouldn't cause lasting harm. So how long is Gul Rockman going to be dead for? That's the line that I really love. So how long is Gul Rockman going to be dead for? And we can see here the institutional conservatism on display. And soon after this, Jones becomes a CIA target himself by being so good at his job and circumventing their deliberate efforts to sabotage the report. Then CIA director John Brennan, who's played wonderfully by Ted Levine, is proof that this is not a Bush equals bad, Obama equals good narrative. The CIA takes care of its own, regardless of who's in charge. And the Obama administration had no interest in tarring the CIA after they killed bin Laden. And as Feinstein's chief of staff tells Jones, they just won the president re-election. Often in films, institutions are portrayed as failing despite an almost uncanny and thrilling competency that audiences love to watch. In the report, the ridiculous incompetence on display is very important. We're witness to one of the most bizarre subplots of the entire story, the elevation of a couple of dubiously credentialed psychologists who played the security community like long con grifters. Douglas Hodge, as always, is great, as Dr. James Mitchell, who claimed expertise in how to make detainees comply and talk methods that are now repudiated. Years go by and Jones diligently continues to uncover what happened. We feel Jones's frustration and understand why he comes so tantalizingly close to releasing the report to the press, but he ultimately pulls back from being the next Edward Snowden. He is rewarded when Dianne Feinstein and Senator John McCain, who of course was tortured for years in captivity, release the entire report just before the Senate leadership changed hands in 2014. The film ends with the real floor speech by McCain as Jones, like Maya, wonders what to do next. What might come as a surprise is how little these practices did to aid our efforts to bring 9-11 culprits to justice and to find and prevent terrorist attacks today and tomorrow. That could be a real surprise since it contradicts the many assurances provided by intelligence officials on the record and in private, that enhanced interrogation techniques were indispensable in the war against terrorism. I think it's an insult to the many intelligence officers who have acquired good intelligence without hurting or degrading prisoners to assert we can't win this war without such methods. Yes, we can and we will. But in the end, 
Torture's failure to serve its intended purpose isn't the main reason to oppose its use. This question isn't about our enemies. It's about us. It's about who we were, who we are, and who we aspire to be. It's about how we represent ourselves to the world. Our enemies act without conscience. We must not. And it's interesting to note hearing that, that both the looming tower and the report end with the actual words of the historical actors speaking in that moment. You'll notice that with all of the titles we're discussing today, there's a lot of slippage between the dramatizations on the screen, the characters played by actors, and the real-life events and people that all of it is drawing from. In many ways, this episode isn't so much about how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. It's also about how Hollywood versions of events tell the public how to think about our past and, therefore, who we are today. What's interesting about these productions is how much or how little time passed between the events they depict and the release dates. The Looming Tower takes place in 1998 through to 2001, but Hulu releases it in 2017. And it's not a stretch to imagine that it took a lean and hungry upstart like Hulu to take a chance on a 10-hour production that forced viewers to critically re-examine our first lie today, that we were so shocked that 9-11 happened. By contrast, American audiences were provided almost immediately with a fairly high-quality depiction of the moment of American fist-pumping victory that was the killing of bin Laden. If Catherine Bigelow didn't already have the Hunt for Bin Laden film in production, we would very likely have been subjected to an even less critical and more jingoistic version of events made by somebody else. The film picks up months after 9-11, but it's forward-facing, not interested in how 9-11 happened, but rather what will be done about it, not on the institutional level or on the policy level so much as on the level of revenge, masquerading as national security. The report also begins the same time as Zero Dark Thirty, but ends a few years after Bigelow's film reinvigorated the torture debate. And it asked, what should be done about what was done? And yet, even though it was very relevant as one of the major architects of the detainee program, Gina Haspel, had recently been made director of the CIA, and Donald Trump made it clear as both a candidate and president that torture was awesome, the report barely made a ripple. Um, We should say the report is also an Amazon Studios production, so that was another studio that could take a chance, not having to worry about traditional box office worries. Uh, And maybe that's one of the reasons why uh, they released it when they did. But perhaps the audience also for the report was too concerned by outrages being perpetrated at home by the current administration to expend much energy on outrages committed abroad and whitewashing conducted at home by a past administration. The long shadow of 9-11 most certainly extends to Trump's America. But by 2019, there were so many other things to be disgusted by. Zero Dark Thirty fed our second and third lies. The systemic and moral failures of the intelligence community laid bare by the 9-11 Commission and dramatized in the Looming Tower were solved and redeemed. 
the daring and dramatically successful raid on bin Laden's compound, the perfect marriage of intelligence work and special forces execution is given as proof. Any excesses along the way can be forgiven because the end result is so satisfying. The report tried to refute both those lies, but few wanted to listen. And who could be surprised? The rebuilding of the intelligence community's reputation, in fact, began during the 9-11 Commission. Let's listen to CIA Director George Tenet testify before the commission in April of 2004. The intelligence that we provided our senior policymakers about the threat al-Qaeda posed, its leadership and its operational span across over 60 countries, and the use of Afghanistan as a sanctuary was clear and direct. The intelligence community had the right strategy and was making the right investments to position itself. Warning is not good enough without the structure to put it into action. We all understood bin Laden's attempt to strike the homeland, but we never translated this knowledge into an effective defense of the country. During periods of heightened threat, we undertook smart, disciplined actions, but ultimately all of us make acknowledge that we did not have the data, the span of control, the redundancy, the, free, the fusion, or the laws in place to give us the chance to compensate for the mistakes that will always be made in any human endeavor. As you can see, he's not only saying we did most things right, he's basically asking for more money to get the rest of it right. Popular culture did a lot of heavy lifting as well, and not in the sort of productions we cover on Lies Agreed Upon, but the Jack Bowers of the screen, the avenging elite warrior-spy hybrids that made the job sexy again. Torture? It works every time. The TV show 24 actually began in 2000 and was already considered the best new show of the season. But it exploded in popularity after 9-11 and became must-see revenge torture porn for many Americans. Here's Jack barging into the president's quarters and torturing the chief of staff under the approving eye of the Secret Service. Why? Because I'm Jack Bauer. And by the way, finding this clip was revealing because every comment on YouTube exudes glorious patriotic fervor for torture. This pop culture icon has replaced reality for some people. Mr. President, my name is Jack Bauer, and I'm sorry to have to confront you like this, but your chief of staff is withholding information that is vital to this nation's security. Stop this! Mr. Cummings is guilty of conspiring with terrorists. He facilitated the theft of a military-grade nerve gas and today is responsible for the death of at least three people. Where is it? He told me he doesn't know! He's lying to you, sir! The man I had inside is gone dark. I don't know. I'm done talking with you, you understand me? You read my file. First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to take out your right eye. Then I'm going to move over and I'm going to take out your left and I'm going to cut you. I'm going to keep cutting you until I get the information that I need. You understand me? So for the last time, where is the nerve gas? Stop! 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 I'll tell you! I'll tell you! I'll tell you! It's on the freighter leaving the port of Long Beach at 2.30. Oh How is it concealed? In a container carrying... And while not as over the top, many critics accused Zero Dark Thirty of doing the same thing. Jason Clark's character had a lot of Jack Bauer swagger to him. 
So this is the complicated pop culture legacy of an enhanced interrogation techniques. Zero Dark Thirty made a lot of people feel better about torture, the real word for it, by implying torture led to the biggest prize of all, Osama bin Laden. But we can't lay it all at the feet of Bigelow. Scores of TV shows and movies since 9-11 have portrayed torture as the method of real men, real patriots, and those who protest against torture's immorality or even just ineffectiveness are characterized as weak and anti-American. We're expected to somehow forgive those responsible because they had our best interests at heart. And this then makes it easier to forgive ourselves for tolerating all manner of executive overreach in the name of national security. Rather than try to describe the layers of controversy generated by Zero Dark Thirty, which also happened to coincide with the final stage of the Senate investigation at the heart of the report, let's play an interview with the screenwriter Mark Bull and the journalist Mark Bowden, whose book, The Finish, details the same events. The interviewer here is ABC News global affairs correspondent, Martha Raditz. Director Catherine Bigelow is on the cover of Time magazine this week. She says she thinks it's a deeply moral movie that questions the use of force. It questions what was done in the name of finding bin Laden. Is that the idea? I think that that's a fair assessment. Head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Dianne Feinstein, along with Senator John McCain and Carl Levin, wrote a letter calling the film grossly inaccurate and misleading in the suggestion that torture helped extract information that led to the location of Osama bin Laden. But I also want to play a clip of an interview I recently did with the former CIA director, Leon Panetta. I know a lot about, um, you know, the kind of human effort that was involved here on all sides to deal with it. But was it factual in in ways? I think, I mean, I think they did a good job at kind of, uh, you know, indicating how some of this was pieced together. Why these different opinions? Um, you know, there's political truth and, and then there's the truth. Uh, I think that the reason that the movie has been attacked is that there's a political narrative here uh, that at its core argues that torture is unnecessary and ineffective and that any of the excesses of the Bush administration in, in the early years uh, contributed nothing. Uh, to the final outcome here of bin Laden. The truth is that, in fact, um, you know, we embraced as a country uh, very stern, uh, cruel methods in the beginning to try to get information. There is so much to unpack here, um, starting with one of the issues that helped launch this podcast, the uneasy relationship between truth and fiction. What is Hollywood's responsibility for getting it right? From what you heard, the Senate committee specifically Feinstein and McCain, thinks the obligation is very real. On the other side, Leon Panetta is tickled pink by any positive depiction of the CIA. He laughs off any embellishments to the story behind the raid because they only make the CIA look intrepid and competent. And it's Mark Bowden there at the end who I think summarizes our lie agreed upon. The U.S. embraced, as he says, stern, very cruel methods in the beginning that ultimately contributed to this victory. Americans are really good at cognitive dissonance, and we simultaneously think torture is not good policy, and maybe even a plurality of us think it is wrong. But we also believe it was forgivable in the wake of 9-11, and we wish it was effective and that it was just, like it is in the movies.
there are a number of things that we want to talk about in a bit more detail with our three titles this week. But I don't think that we want to let go of this question of torture quite yet, both the legacy of it in terms of policy for the nation, but also the legacy of it in terms of how the American public sees it in large part because of how it's been depicted in television and in the movies. Yeah, that really is my first question for for you and for really all the listeners in their own minds here is, you know, what do you think is the legacy of torture? And, and Or if you want to be polite, enhanced interrogation techniques. And before you answer them, I found this during our research here, that according to a, a 2017 Pew Research poll, the country really is just divided down the middle on the question of torture, with 49% saying it should not be used under any circumstances. Uh, and when you break it down, this all depends on race, gender, age, political persuasion, even geography. So maybe we don't agree on this part of the torture question, but I think between the PR spin and popular cultural representations like Jack Bauer in Zero Dark Thirty, even if we oppose torture, we explain it away as an understandable overreaction to 9-11. Yes, and we can't, uh, as we said before, we can't sort of lay it all in the lap of uh, Zero Dark Thirty because or even 24, because since 9-11, there really has been a profound shift in how torture is represented on screen. And that goes for how often it's represented on screen and, and in what kinds of shows and movies we see it. Uh, on the small screen, on network television, so this is the, the television that is supposed to be still confined by, you know, regulations that uh, cable and streaming services aren't, shows like Blacklist and Scandal are, they both have, uh, both of those shows have embraced really incredibly graphic scenes of, of torture. And on the the big screen, one notable uh, point is the James Bond reboot, uh, which comes after 9-11. And really, we see with the Daniel Craig James Bond that the kind of James Bond who is debonair and resourceful, but seldom gets his tuxedo dirty, uh, is replaced instead by a much more brutal and brutalized James Bond, as we see in the first movie in the reboot, Casino Royale, where he is being tortured by uh, Mads Mikkelsen in a, in a way that's uh, very reminiscent and I think intends to be of the experiences of the detainees at Abu Ghraib prison. Another thing that I, I noticed in this is sort of who it is that is either in favor of or opposed to these things, uh, in the case of, of, um, uh, Maya and, and Daniel Jones, um, what did you think about those characters that, that are sort of at the head of either the pro or con, uh, camps on this? You know, I, I had seen Zero Dark Thirty when it came out and, and knew the, that movie much better than the report. And so when I saw, you know, Adam Driver, who's always great in the role of Daniel Jones, I, it just occurred to me that they are, Namaya and Daniel Jones are the same person, but coming from different sides of this equation here, that Maya is the, you know, the expert CIA 
not looking at consequences, just focused on the the mission of the hunt for bin Laden. Um, and then Daniel Jones is the other side. You know, he's the the investigator, the moralist, the one who wants accountability, who want who of course they love America in their own way, but he's trying to do it the right way. And what's striking is just how both of them have no real depth to them beyond the mission, their respective missions. And it's it's a choice that the directors have made here. You have great actors. I'm not saying I, you know, I, I think they perform, their performances are great, but I'd love to have seen them as people. They're just there to, to further their respective mission. And that's something I think, you know, we, we can talk about, like, why are they portrayed that way? And how do they compare to maybe the characters in The Looming Tower? Yeah, I think that you're hitting on something that's definitely apparent. And I, my theory, I, this is just a, a thought, is that they're intended to really kind of be the empty vessels that can serve whatever the audience wants them to serve. They're stand-ins for the audience wish fulfillment, whether that be the uh, avenging angel that is Maya or the avenging angel that is Daniel Jones. In both cases, they are actually to kind of harken back to a previous episode, they're crusaders. And I agree that that compared to the characters in the looming tower, you know, there's no contest. And of course, we have to acknowledge that they have 10 hours to tell the story in the looming tower. But by having much more complicated characters, we therefore have a much more complicated nation. And we also therefore have much more complicated enemies. And so the motivations aren't just two-dimensional. And the complications and the challenges are also kind of given their due. Perhaps that indicates that part of the problem is trying to narrow down such incredibly complicated and importantly nuanced stories about our national history into something that is a feature length film that 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 is maybe in and of itself a bit problematic. I mean, boy, we know everything, maybe even more than we want to about some of these characters in the looming tower. Yeah. And the, and the thing is, you know, John O'Neill and Alex Dufan are, are real people. Uh, but the, one of the things that is at the center of the story is their faith. You know, John O'Neill is this very lapsed Catholic who's also, you know, as we see, he's He's kind of an immoral guy. Uh, and yet he's really, with his job, he feels the need to kind of be connected spiritually to something because it's so difficult. And Sufan is, is, is a Muslim. And here he is chasing Muslims. And he's so angry at what he sees being done to his religion. Yet also he sees himself straying from his faith. And the part of the story is his really return to what he knows as the true Islam and and going to war in his own way against the people he sees as who have hijacked his religion. And that's something you just can't get in a, a two hour or, or longer, two and a half hour film like Zero Dark Thirty. The characters aren't fleshed out, certainly not the Muslim characters at all. Whereas in these two, who are the, really the, the pillars of the, of the story are, their motivation matters. And we get to see that it's, that it's human beings at the center of the story, not just the, the mission. One thing that has uh, occurred to me is that 
it's really notable that the real life person, Ali Sufan, is so important to all three of these narratives. And yet it's only in The Looming Tower that he's really sort of given his due. Uh, in the other two, in pursuit of this kind of more streamlined story, we don't get a chance to see what really the Looming Tower so successfully argues, the insanity of having a xenophobic national security apparatus that bars or limits the members that it has that actually are of the culture or the nationality or that can speak the language, Ali Sufan is all of that. But the way that he engages in this relation, these relationship building exercise and in interrogations and in the way that he's able to smooth the path for the much more bull in a china shop, John O'Neill, but also recuperating the relationships that are destroyed by the CIA. You know, all of these things that he's able to do, you know, we get that in the looming tower. Yeah. Ali Sufan is, he does what we know works in, in interrogation, which is the long game. You know, you, you befriend them, you you get them to brag. That's what really ultimately worked. I was an intelligence analyst at this time. I used to read the reports that came out of his interrogations, honestly, and and his were always reliable because he he knows that if you get some of these characters talking, they will brag about themselves. You you uh, manipulate them. You're much smarter than they are, and and I think also the it's depicted in a way that's much better in Looming Tower because we get to know the motivations of these. Al Qaeda or their, or just people in, a, in and around Al Qaeda. We know who they are more than we do in the other two films. Yeah, you know, in the intelligence world, we have this word blowback, you know, when, and it's a foreign policy issue too. When the United States does something involving uh, violence or something ag- aggressive, you have blowback, unintended consequences. And so one of the Early attacks on Al Qaeda was this um, bombing of a, a training camp in 1999, 98, 99, honestly, and and it's um, uh, it's depicted in Looming Tower. And one of the characters is this young boy who happens to be at the camp, and his parents are killed in the bombing of a you know Tomahawk missile strike the. The, the camp and do very little damage to anything that actually mattered, but you do kill a lot of people. And so the, the Looming Tower follows this boy's path from being an orphan to winding up in an Al Qaeda camp for real and, you know, serving tea to uh, Aman al-Zawahiri and the, all these higher ups. And he kind of, be, he becomes our eyes and ears in the world of Al Qaeda. And because he is now uh, orphaned and angry and vengeful because of Obviously, having his you know, uh, uh, by an action of the United States, we see him actually on the little boat that crashes into the USS Cole and killing 17 sailors. And was there really a 10 year old boy on on that boat? No, but it's a fictionalization we can live with here because it shows you that that our own actions have consequences. And this boy's trauma and grief is something we uh, are responsible for, and that leads to real blowback. And and it also fleshes out the motivations of 
of Al-Qaeda as, and not simply seeing that as, as pure evil, but as in reaction to things that we have done in the region. I'd like to also draw a connection between that and another film that we talked about previously, which is Bloody Sunday, because that also, you know, at the end of Bloody Sunday, we have James Nesbitt's character in a, a press conference stating quite starkly that the carelessness with which the British treat the lives of the population of Northern Ireland ends up resulting in nothing but, as he says, you know, the the greatest recruitment tool the IRA has ever had. And that is the point that is made through that little boy uh, in the looming tower. I'd also like to talk about one particular performance in The Looming Tower because I think it gets at the different attitude towards intelligence work, and that's Bill Camp. Now, Bill Camp just kind of, at least as far as I was concerned, kind of exploded on the scene about five years ago. I don't have a recollection of seeing him before that, but now, um, first of all, he seems to be in everything, but also he's so fantastic in everything that he's in. And in this... He plays actually, a, a, if I understand, a sort of a composite character, but he really represents the kind of unsexy and really quite sad life of the average intelligence officer. And this may be because, of course, um, John le Carré, the great John le Carré recently died, but he, you know, he really fits more into the mold of a of a Le Carre kind of spy or, you know, in the way that he goes about his work perpetually world weary and ground down by the horrors that he has to deal with, but nevertheless driven to do it. And I, I just wanted to sort of mention, mention that convergence. Yeah. He is a quintessential intelligence officer, police detective, everything you see, that's that's kind of what he's always playing these days. And and it does get to that idea that this job, the intelligence world, is one that is very unhealthy for all of our characters. And you see it you see it in the Looming Tower more than the others, where it's just you are you're vulnerable and you're up against institutions that can just crush you and not even think about it twice. And and you're living with this, maybe this Cassandra complex. If you know what's going to happen and you can't stop it. And all those things are, are part of the, the classic mold of the genre. And Lakari, of course, helped create the genre. And I, and I think it gets back to, you know, other depictions of the CIA or intelligence that we've had even in our series, our podcast, where we, we have an Argo, a, you know, Mendez's character, the Ben Affleck character also has a very, sad, flawed personal life. And he's up against the wheel of, you know, he's crushed beneath the wheel of the CIA as an institution. Exactly. And then, of course, in Charlie Wilson's War, we have poor old Gust, who knows what needs to happen, knows how to do it, but can't get anyone to see his worth because he didn't go to an Ivy League school. So you have these outsiders and Cassandras that are very much in the Bill Camp kind of category uh, and very different from the sort of superhero or rather maybe super driven CIA operatives that we get in Maya, 
and that we also, in a weird way, get in the FBI agent of uh, Jones, who seem to have, in some ways, a much more selfish motivation because it's what they need to do rather than what their country needs them to do. And the other thing that um, just before we close that I think is worth um, mentioning is that we are recording this one week after the insurrection and the uh, attempted takeover of the Capitol building. And it looks increasingly potentially the attempted assassination or at least kidnapping of members of Congress, potentially even the vice uh, vice president. And that so, you know, some of the things that we're talking about today, we are impacted by that and have those things in the back of our minds as we're talking about how the government looked at its failings in uh, previous in previous instances, whether it's about 9-11 or about the wars and uh, the torture program. I don't know if you'd like to add anything to. Yeah, to and I, I think we'll have another spate of films and television shows about these moments and the same rules will apply. What is the relationship between truth and fiction and how will these institutions be represented and i i for one think we'll have 9-11 as a um as a reference point <laughs> and maybe this moment that we're living through now will be another refer- reference point for future generations this episode was written by leah parody and brian krim it was edited by leah and the theme music was written by mike patterson Check out our website, liesreadupon.com, for more on each episode, including lit clips and links to the films discussed. You could subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at liesreadupon. That's at lies underscore upon.